Question 105 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, on the Divine Government. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, on the Divine Government, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 105. Of the Change of Creatures by God in eight articles. We now consider the second effect of the divine government, that is, the change of creatures, and first the change of creatures by God, secondly the change of one creature by another. Under the first head there are eight points of inquiry. 1. Whether God can move immediately the matter to the form. 2. Whether he can immediately move a body. 3. Whether he can move the intellect. Four whether he can move the will. 5. Whether God works in every worker. 6. Whether he can do anything outside the order imposed on things. 7. Whether all that God does is miraculous. 8. Of the diversity of miracles. First article. Whether God can move the matter immediately to the form. Objection 1. It would seem that God cannot move the matter immediately to receive the form. For as the philosopher proves in Metaphysics 7, Didascale 6, 8, nothing can bring form into any particular matter, except that form which is in matter, because like begets like. But God is not a form in matter, therefore he cannot cause a form in matter. Objection 2. Further, any agent inclined to several effects will produce none of them unless it is determined to a particular one by some other cause. For as the philosopher says, on the soul 3.11, a general assertion does not move the mind except by means of some particular apprehension. But the divine power is the universal cause of all things. Therefore it cannot produce any particular form except by means of a particular agent. Objection 3. As universal being depends on the first universal cause, so determinate being depends on determinate particular causes. As we have seen above, in question 104, answer 2. But the determinate being of a particular thing is from its own form. Therefore, the forms of things are produced by God only by means of particular causes. On the contrary, it is written, Genesis 2.7, God formed man of the slime of the earth. I answer that, God can move matter immediately to form, because whatever is in passive potentiality can be reduced to act by the active power which extends over that potentiality. Therefore, since the divine power extends over matter, as produced by God, it can be reduced to act by the divine power. And this is what is meant by matter being moved to a form, for a form is nothing else but the act of matter. Reply to Objection 1. An effect is assimilated to the active cause in two ways. First, according to the same species, as man is generated by man and fire by fire. Secondly, by being virtually contained in the cause, as the form of the effect is virtually contained in its cause, thus animals produced by putrefaction and plants and minerals are like the sun and stars by whose power they are produced. In this way the effect is like its active cause as regards all that over which the power of that cause extends. Now, the power of God extends to both matter and form, as we've said above, question 14, answer 2, question 44, answer 2, 
Wherefore, if a composite thing be produced, it is likened to God by way of a virtual inclusion, or it is likened to the composite generator by a likeness of species. Therefore, just as the composite generator can move matter to a form by generating a composite thing like itself, so also can God. But no other form not existing in matter can do this, because the power of no other separate substance extends over matter. Hence angels and demons operate on visible matter not by imprinting forms in matter, but by making use of corporeal seeds. Reply to Objection 2. This argument would hold if God were to act of natural necessity. But since he acts by his will and intellect, which knows the particular and not only the universal natures of all forms, it follows that he can determinately imprint this or that form on matter. Reply to Objection 3. The fact that secondary causes are ordered to determinate effects is due to God. Wherefore, since God ordains other causes to certain effects, he can also produce certain effects by himself without any other cause. Second article. Whether God can move a body immediately. Objection 1. It would seem that God cannot move a body immediately. For as the mover and the moved must exist simultaneously, as the philosopher says, Physics 7, 2, it follows that there must be some contact between the mover and the moved. But there can be no contact between God and a body. For Dionysius says, in Divine Names 1, there is no contact with God. Therefore, God cannot move a body immediately. Objection 2. Further, God is the mover unmoved. But such also is the desirable object when apprehended. Therefore, God moves as the object of desire and apprehension. But he cannot be apprehended except by the intellect, which is neither a body nor a corporeal power. Therefore, God cannot move a body immediately. Objection 3. Further, the philosopher proves, in Physics 8.10, that an infinite power moves instantaneously. But it is impossible for a body to be moved in one instant. For since every movement is between opposites, it follows that two opposites would exist at once in the same subject, which is impossible. Therefore, a body cannot be moved immediately by an infinite power. But God's power is infinite, as we have explained in question 25, answer 2. Therefore, God cannot move a body immediately. On the contrary, God produced the works of the six days immediately, among which is included the movements of bodies, as is clear from Genesis 1.9, let the waters be gathered together into one place. Therefore, God alone can move a body immediately. I answer that it is erroneous to say that God cannot himself produce all the determinate effects which are produced by any created cause. Wherefore, since bodies are moved immediately by created causes, we cannot possibly doubt that God can move immediately any bodies whatever. This indeed follows from what is above stated in answer 1. For every movement of any body whatever either results from a form, as the movements of things heavy and light result from the form which they have from their generating cause, for which reason the generator is called the mover, or else tends to a form, as heating tends to the form of heat. Now it belongs to the same cause to imprint a form, to dispose to that form, and to give the movement which results from that form. For fire not only generates fire, but it also heats and moves things upwards. Therefore, as God can imprint form immediately in matter, it follows that he can move any body whatever in respect of any movement whatever. 
Reply to Objection 1. There are two kinds of contact. Corporeal contact, when two bodies touch each other, and virtual contact, as the cause of sadness is said to touch the one made sad. According to the first kind of contact, God, as being incorporeal, neither touches nor is touched. But according to virtual contact, he touches creatures by moving them. But he is not touched, because the natural power of no creature can reach up to him. Thus did Dionysius understand the words, There is no contact with God. That is, so that God himself be touched. Reply to Objection 2. God moves as the object of desire and apprehension. But it does not follow that he always moves as being desired and apprehended by that which is moved, but as being desired and known by himself, for he does all things for his own goodness. Reply to Objection 3. The philosopher, in Physics 8.10, intends to prove that the power of the first mover is not a power of the first mover of bulk by the following argument. The power of the first mover is infinite which he proves from the fact that the first mover can move in infinite time. Now, an infinite power, if it were a power of bulk, would move without time, which is impossible. Therefore, the infinite power of the first mover must be in something which is not measured by its bulk. Whence it is clear that for a body to be moved without time can only be the result of an infinite power. The reason is that every power of bulk moves in its entirety, since it moves by the necessity of its nature, but an infinite power surpasses out of all proportion any finite power. Now the greater the power of the mover, the greater is the velocity of the movement. Therefore, since a finite power moves in a determinate time, it follows that an infinite power does not move in any time, for between one time and any other time there is some proportion. On the other hand, a power which is not in bulk is the power of an intelligent being, which operates in its effects according to what is fitting for them. And therefore, since it cannot be fitting for a body to be moved without time, it does not follow that it moves without time. Third article. Whether God moves the created intellect immediately. Objection 1. It would seem that God does not immediately move the created intellect. For the action of the intellect is governed by its own subject since it does not pass into external matter, as stated in Metaphysics 9, Didascale 8, 8. But the action of what is moved by another does not proceed from that wherein it is, but from the mover. Therefore, the intellect is not moved by another, and so apparently God cannot move the created intellect. Objection 2. Further, anything which in itself is a sufficient principle of movement is not moved by another. But the movement of the intellect is its act of understanding, in the sense in which we say that to understand or to feel is a kind of movement, as the philosopher says in On the Soul 3.7. But the intellectual light which is natural to the soul is a sufficient principle of understanding. Therefore, it is not moved by another. Objection 3. Further, as the senses are moved by the sensible, so the intellect is moved by the intelligible. But God is not intelligible to us, and exceeds the capacity of our intellect. Therefore, God cannot move our intellect. On the contrary, the teacher moves the intellect of the one taught. But it is written, Psalm 93.10, that God teaches man knowledge. Therefore, God moves the human intellect.
I answer that as in corporeal movement that is called the mover which gives the form that is the principle of movement, so that is said to move the intellect which is the cause of the form that is the principle of the intellectual operation, called the movement of the intellect. Now, there is a twofold principle of intellectual operation in the intelligent being, one which is the intellectual power itself, which principle exists in the one who understands in potentiality, while the other is the principle of actual understanding, namely, the likeness of the thing understood in the one who understands. So a thing is said to move the intellect, whether it gives to him who understands the power of understanding, or impresses on him the likeness of the thing understood. Now God moves the created intellect in both ways, for he is the first immaterial being, and as intellectuality is a result of immateriality, it follows that he is the first intelligent being. Therefore, since in each order the first is the cause of all that follows, we must conclude that from him proceeds all intellectual power. In like manner, since he is the first being, and all other beings pre-exist in him as in their first cause, it follows that they exist intelligibly in him, after the mode of his own nature. For as the intelligible types of everything must exist first of all in God, and are derived from him by other intellects in order that these may actually understand, so also are they derived by creatures that they may subsist. Therefore, God so moves the created intellect inasmuch as he gives it the intellectual power, whether natural or superadded, and impresses on the created intellect the intelligible species, and maintains and preserves both power and species in existence. Reply to Objection 1. The intellectual operation is performed by the intellect in which it exists as by a secondary cause, but it proceeds from God as from its first cause. For by him the power to understand is given to the one who understands. Reply to Objection 2. The intellectual light together with the likeness of the thing understood is a sufficient principle of the understanding, but it is a secondary principle and depends upon the first principle. Reply to Objection 3. The intelligible object moves our human intellect so far as, in a way, it impresses on it its own likeness, by means of which the intellect is able to understand it. But the likenesses which God impresses on the created intellect are not sufficient to enable the created intellect to understand him through his essence, as we have seen above, question 12, answer 2, question 56, answer 3. Hence, he moves the created intellect, and yet he cannot be intelligible to it, as we have explained, in question 12, answer 4. Fourth article, whether God can move the created will. Objection 1. It would seem that God cannot move the created will, for whatever is moved from without is forced, but the will cannot be forced, therefore it is not moved from without, and therefore cannot be moved by God. Objection 2. Further, God cannot make two contradictories to be true at the same time, but this would follow if he moved the will, for to be voluntarily moved means to be moved from within and not by another, therefore God cannot move the will. Objection 3. Further, movement is attributed to the mover rather than to the one moved. Wherefore, homicide is not ascribed to the stone, but to the thrower. Therefore, if God moves the will, it follows that voluntary actions are not imputed to man for reward or blame. But this is false. Therefore, God does not move the will. On the contrary, it is written, 
Philemon 2.13. It is God who worketh in us, Vulgate you, both to will and to accomplish. I answer that, as the intellect is moved by the object and by the giver of the power of intelligence, as stated above in answer 3, so is the will moved by its object, which is good, and by him who creates the power of willing. Now the will can be moved by good as its object, but by God alone sufficiently and efficaciously. For nothing can move a movable thing sufficiently unless the active power of the mover surpasses or at least equals the potentiality of the thing movable. Now the potentiality of the will extends to the universal good, for its object is the universal good, just as the object of the intellect is the universal being. But every created good is some particular good. God alone is the universal good, whereas he alone fills the capacity of the will and moves it sufficiently as its object. In like manner, the power of willing is caused by God alone, for to will is nothing but to be inclined toward the object of the will, which is universal good. But to incline toward the universal good belongs to the first mover, to whom the ultimate end is proportionate, just as in human affairs to him that presides over the community belongs the directing of his subjects to the common weal. Wherefore, in both ways it belongs to God to move the will, but especially in the second way, by an interior inclination of the will. Reply to Objection 1. A thing moved by another is forced if moved against its natural inclination, but if it is moved by another giving to it the proper natural inclination, it is not forced, as when a heavy body is made to move downwards by that which produced it, then it is not forced. In like manner God, while moving the will, does not force it, because he gives the will its own natural inclination. Reply to Objection 2. To be moved voluntarily is to be moved from within, that is, by an interior principle. Yet this interior principle may be caused by an exterior principle, and so to be moved from within is not repugnant to being moved by another. Reply to Objection 3. If the will were so moved by another as in no way to be moved from within itself, the act of the will would not be imputed for reward or blame. But since its being moved by another does not prevent its being moved from within itself, as we have stated, add to, it does not thereby forfeit the motive for merit or demerit. Fifth article, whether God works in every agent. Objection 1. It would seem that God does not work in every agent, for we must not attribute any insufficiency to God, if therefore God works in every agent, he works sufficiently in each one. Hence it would be superfluous for the created agent to work at all. Objection 2. Further, the same work cannot proceed at the same time from two sources, as neither can one and the same movement belong to two movable things. Therefore, if the creature's operation is from God operating in the creature, it cannot at the same time proceed from the same creature, and so no creature works at all. Objection 3. Further, the maker is the cause of the operation of the thing made, as giving it the form whereby it operates. Therefore, if God is the cause of the operation of things made by him, this would be inasmuch as he gives them the power of operating. But this is in the beginning when he makes them. Thus, it seems that God does not operate any further in the operating creature. On the contrary, it is written, Isaiah 26.12, Lord, 
thou hast wrought all our works in Vulgate for us. I answer that some have understood God to work in every agent in such a way that no created power has any effect in things, but that God alone is the ultimate cause of everything wrought. For instance, it is not fire that gives heat, but God in the fire, and so forth. But this is impossible. First, because the order of cause and effect would be taken away from created things, and this would imply lack of power in the Creator, for it is due to the power of the cause that it bestows active power on its effect. Secondly, because the active powers which are seen to exist in things would be bestowed on things to no purpose, if these wrought nothing through them. Indeed, all things created would seem in a way to be purposeless if they lacked an operation proper to them, since the purpose of everything is its operation. For the less perfect is always for the sake of the more perfect, and consequently, as the matter is for the sake of the form, so the form, which is the first act, is for the sake of its operation, which is the second act. And thus operation is the end of the creature. We must therefore understand that God works in things in such a manner that things have their proper operation. In order to make this clear, we must observe that as there are few kinds of causes, matter is not a principle of action, but is the subject that receives the effect of the action. On the other hand, the end, the agent, and the form are principles of action, but in a certain order. For the first principle of action is the end which moves the agent, the second is the agent. The third is the form of that which the agent applies to action, although the agent also acts through its own form, as may be clearly seen in things made by art. For the craftsman is moved to action by the end, which is the thing wrought, for instance, a chest or a bed, and applies to action the axe, which cuts through its being sharp. Thus then does God work in every worker, according to these three things, first as an end, for since every operation is for the sake of some good, real or apparent, and nothing is good either really or apparently, except in as far as it participates in a likeness to the supreme good, which is God, it follows that God himself is the cause of every operation as its end. Again, it is to be observed that where there are several agents in order, the second always acts in virtue of the first, for the first agent moves the second to act. And thus all agents act in virtue of God himself, and therefore he is the cause of action in every agent. Thirdly, we must observe that God not only moves things to operate, as it were applying their forms and powers to operation, just as the workman applies the axe to cut, who nevertheless at times does not give the axe its form, but he also gives created agents their forms and preserves them in being. Therefore he is the cause of action, not only by giving the form which is the principle of action, as the generator is said to be the cause of movement in things heavy and light, but also as preserving the forms and powers of things, just as the sun is said to be the cause of the manifestation of colors, inasmuch as it gives and preserves the light by which colors are made manifest. And since the form of a thing is within the thing, and all the more as it approaches nearer to the first and universal cause, and because in all things God himself is properly the cause of universal being, which is innermost in all things, it follows that in all things God works intimately. For this reason, in Holy Scripture, the operations of nature are attributed to God as operating in nature, according to Job 10.11. Thou hast clothed me with skin and flesh. Thou hast put me together with bones and sinews. Reply to Objection 1. God works sufficiently in things as first agent, 
but it does not follow from this that the operation of secondary agents is superfluous. Reply to Objection 2. One action does not proceed from two agents of the same order, but nothing hinders the same action from proceeding from a primary and a secondary agent. Reply to Objection 3. God not only gives things their form, but he also preserves them in existence and applies them to act, and is moreover at the end of every action, as above explained. Sixth article. Whether God can do anything outside the established order of nature. Objection 1. It would seem that God cannot do anything outside the established order of nature. For Augustine, against Faustus Amaniche, 26.3, says, God, the maker and creator of each nature, does nothing against nature. But that which is outside the natural order seems to be against nature. Therefore, God can do nothing outside the natural order. Objection 2. Further, as the order of justice is from God, so is the order of nature. But God cannot do anything outside the order of justice, for then he would do something unjust. Therefore, he cannot do anything outside the order of nature. Objection 3. Further, God established the order of nature. Therefore, if God does anything outside the order of nature, it would seem that he is changeable, which cannot be said. On the contrary, Augustine says, against Faustus Amaniche 26.3, God sometimes does things which are contrary to the ordinary course of nature. I answer that, from each cause there results a certain order to its effects, since every cause is a principle. And so, according to the multiplicity of causes, there results a multiplicity of orders, subjected one to the other, as cause is subjected to cause. Wherefore, a higher cause is not subjected to a cause of a lower order, but conversely. An example of this might be seen in human affairs. On the father of a family depends the order of the household, which order is contained in the order of the city, which order again depends on the ruler of the city, while this last order depends on that of the king, by whom the whole kingdom is ordered. If, therefore, we consider the order of things depending on the first cause, God cannot do anything against this order, for if he did so, he would act against his foreknowledge, or his will, or his goodness. But if we consider the order of things depending on any secondary cause, thus God can do something outside such order. For he is not subject to the order of secondary causes, but, on the contrary, this order is subject to him, as proceeding from him, not by natural necessity, but by the choice of his own will. For he could have created another order of things, for instance, by producing the effects of secondary causes without them, or by producing certain effects to which secondary causes do not extend. So, Augustine says, against Faustus Amaniche, 26.3, God acts against the wanted course of nature, but by no means does he act against the supreme law, for he does not act against himself. Reply to Objection 1. In natural things, something may happen outside this natural order in two ways. It may happen by the action of an agent which did not give them their natural inclination, as, for example, when a man moves a heavy body upwards, which does not owe to him its natural inclination to move downwards, and that would be against nature. It may also happen by the action of the agent 
on whom the natural inclination depends. And this is not against nature, as is clear in the ebb and flow of the tide, which is not against nature. Although it is against the natural movement of water in a downward direction, for it is owing to the influence of a heavenly body, on which the natural inclination of lower bodies depends. Therefore, since the order of nature is given to things by God, if he does anything outside this order, it is not against nature. Wherefore Augustine says, against Faustus and Manichae 26.3, That is natural to each thing, which is caused by him from whom is all mode, number, and order in nature. Reply to Objection 2. The order of justice arises by relation to the first cause, who is the rule of all justice, and therefore God can do nothing against such order. Reply to Objection 3. God fixed a certain order in things in such a way that at the same time he reserved to himself whatever he intended to do otherwise than by a particular cause. So when he acts outside this order, he does not change. Seventh article. Whether whatever God does outside the natural order is miraculous. Objection 1. It would seem that not everything which God does outside the natural order of things is miraculous. For the creation of the world and of souls and the justification of the unrighteous are done by God outside the natural order as not being accomplished by the action of any natural cause, yet these things are not called miracles. Therefore, not everything that God does outside the natural order is a miracle. Objection 2. Further, a miracle is something difficult, which seldom occurs, surpassing the faculty of nature, and going so far beyond our hopes as to compel our astonishment, as said St. Augustine on the Prophet of Believing 16. But some things outside the order of nature are not arduous, for they occur in small things, such as the recovery and healing of the sick, nor are they of rare occurrence since they happen frequently, as when the sick were placed in the streets to be healed by the shadow of Peter, in Acts 5.15. Nor do they surpass the faculty of nature, as when people are cured of a fever. Nor are they beyond our hopes, since we all hope for the resurrection of the dead, which nevertheless will be outside the course of nature. Therefore, not all things outside the course of nature are miraculous. Objection 3. Further, the word miracle is derived from admiration. Now, admiration concerns things manifest to the senses, but sometimes things happen outside the order of nature, which are not manifest to the senses, as when the apostles were endowed with knowledge without studying or being taught. Therefore, not everything that occurs outside the order of nature is miraculous. On the contrary, Augustine says, against Faustus and Manichae, 26.3, Where God does anything against that order of nature which we know and are accustomed to observe, we call it a miracle. I answer that the word miracle is derived from admiration, which arises when an effect is manifest whereas its cause is hidden, as when a man sees an eclipse without knowing its cause, as the philosopher says in the beginning of his metaphysics. Now the cause of a manifest effect may be known to one, but unknown to others. Wherefore a thing is wonderful to one man and not at all to others, as an eclipse is to a rustic, but not to an astronomer. Now, a miracle is so called as being full of wonder, as having a cause absolutely hidden from all, and this cause is God. Wherefore, those things which God does outside those causes which we know are called miracles. Reply to Objection 1. Creation and the justification of the unrighteous, though done by God alone, are not, properly speaking, miracles. 
because they are not of a nature to proceed from any other cause, so they do not occur outside the order of nature, since they do not belong to that, that order. Reply to Objection 2. An arduous thing is called a miracle, not on account of the excellence of the thing wherein it is done, but because it surpasses the faculty of nature. Likewise, a thing is called unusual, not because it does not often happen, but because it is outside the usual natural course of things. Furthermore, a thing is said to be above the faculty of nature, not only by reason of the substance of the thing done, but also on account of the manner and order in which it is done. Again, a miracle is said to go beyond the hope of nature, not above the hope of grace, which hope comes from faith, whereby we believe in the future resurrection. Reply to Objection 3. The knowledge of the apostles, although not manifest in itself, yet was made manifest in its effect, from which it was shown to be wonderful. Eighth Article. Whether one miracle is greater than another. Objection 1. It would seem that one miracle is not greater than another. For Augustine says, Epistle to Volusianus 137, In miraculous deeds, the whole measure of the deed is the power of the doer. But by the same power of God, all miracles are done. Therefore, one miracle is not greater than another. Objection 2. Further, the power of God is infinite, but the infinite exceeds the finite beyond all proportion, and therefore no more reason exists to wonder at one effect thereof than another. Therefore, one miracle is not greater than another. On the contrary, the Lord says, speaking of miraculous works in John 14.12, The works that I do, he also shall do, and greater than these shall he do. I answer that nothing is called a miracle by comparison with the divine power, because no action is of any account compared with the power of God, according to Isaiah 40.15. Behold, the Gentiles are as a drop from a bucket, and are counted as the smallest grain of a balance. But a thing is called a miracle by comparison with the power of nature which it surpasses. So the more the power of nature is surpassed, the greater the miracle. Now the power of nature is surpassed in three ways. Firstly, in the substance of the deed, for instance, if two bodies occupy the same place, or if the sun goes backwards, or if the human body is glorified, such things nature is absolutely unable to do, and these hold the highest rank among miracles. Secondly, a thing surpasses the power of nature not in the deed, but in that wherein it is done, as the raising of the dead, giving sight to the blind, and the like. For nature can give life, but not to the dead, and such hold the second rank in miracles. Thirdly, a thing surpasses nature's power in the measure and order in which it is done, as when a man is cured of a fever suddenly, without treatment or by the usual process of nature, or as when the air is suddenly condensed into rain by divine power without a natural cause, as occurred at the prayers of Samuel and Elias, and these hold the lowest place in miracles. Moreover, each of these kinds has various degrees, according to the different ways in which the power of nature is surpassed. From this it is clear how to reply to the objections, arguing, as they do, from the divine power. End of question 105. Question 106 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, 
on the divine government. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, on the Divine Government, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 106. How one creature moves another, in four articles. We next consider how one creature moves another. This consideration will be threefold. 1. How the angels move, who are purely spiritual creatures. 2. How bodies move. 3. How man moves, who is composed of a spiritual and a corporeal nature. Concerning the first point, there are three things to be considered. 1. How an angel acts on an angel. 2. How an angel acts on a corporeal nature. 3. How an angel acts on man. The first of these raises the question of the enlightenment and speech of the angels, and of their mutual coordination, both of the good and of the bad angels. Concerning their enlightenment, there are four points of inquiry. 1. Whether one angel moves the intellect of another by enlightenment. 2. Whether one angel moves the will of another. 3. Whether an inferior angel can enlighten a superior angel. 4. Whether a superior angel enlightens an inferior angel in all that he knows himself. First article. Whether one angel enlightens another. Objection 1. It would seem that one angel does not enlighten another, for the angels possess now the same beatitude which we hope to obtain. But one man will not then enlighten another, according to Jeremiah 31.34. They shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother. Therefore neither does an angel enlighten another now. Objection 2. Further, light in the angels is threefold, of nature, of grace, and of glory. But an angel is enlightened in the light of nature by the Creator, in the light of grace by the Justifier, in the light of glory by the Beatifier, all of which comes from God. Therefore, one angel does not enlighten another. Objection 3. Further, light is a form in the mind, but the rational mind is informed by God alone, without created intervention, as Augustine says in 83 different questions, question 51. Therefore, one angel does not enlighten the mind of another. On the contrary, Dionysius says, on the heavenly hierarchy 8, that the angels of the second hierarchy are cleansed, enlightened, and perfected by the angels of the first hierarchy. I answer that one angel enlightens another. To make this clear, we must observe that intellectual light is nothing else than a manifestation of truth, according to Ephesians 5.13. All that is made manifest is light. Hence, to enlighten means nothing else but to communicate to others the manifestation of the known truth, according to the Apostle, Ephesians 3.8. To me, the least of all the saints is given this grace, to enlighten all men, that they may see what is the dispensation of the mystery which hath been hidden from eternity in God. Therefore, one angel is said to enlighten another by manifesting the truth which he knows himself. Hence, Dionysius says, on the heavenly hierarchy 7, Theologians plainly show that the orders of the heavenly beings are taught divine science by the higher minds. Now, since two things concur in the intellectual operation, as we've said, 
in question 105, article 3, namely the intellectual power and the likeness of the thing understood, in both of these one angel can notify the known truth to another. First, by strengthening his intellectual power, for just as the power of an imperfect body is strengthened by the neighborhood of a more perfect body, for instance, the less hot is made hotter by the presence of what is hotter, so the intellectual power of an inferior angel is strengthened by the superior angel turning to him. Since in spiritual things, for one thing to turn to another corresponds to neighborhood in corporeal things. Secondly, one angel manifests the truth to another as regards the likeness of the thing understood. For the superior angel receives the knowledge of truth by a kind of universal conception, to receive which the inferior angel's intellect is not sufficiently powerful, for it is natural to him to receive the truth in a more particular manner. Therefore the superior angel distinguishes, in a way, the truth which he conceives universally, so that it can be grasped by the inferior angel, and thus he proposes it to his knowledge. Thus it is with us that the teacher, in order to adapt himself to others, divides into many points the knowledge which he possesses in the universal. This is thus expressed by Dionysius on the heavenly hierarchy 15. Every intellectual substance, with provident power, divides and multiplies the uniform knowledge bestowed on it by one nearer to God, so as to lead its inferiors upwards by analogy. Reply to Objection 1. All the angels, both inferior and superior, see the essence of God immediately, and in this respect one does not teach another. It is of this truth that the prophet speaks, wherefore he adds, They shall teach no more every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them even to the greatest. But all the types of the divine works, which are known in God as in their cause, God knows in himself because he comprehends himself, but of others who see God, each one knows the more types, the more perfectly he sees God. Hence a superior angel knows more about the types of the divine works than an inferior angel, and concerning these the former enlightens the latter. And as to this, Dionysius says, Divine Names 4, that the angels are enlightened by the types of existing things. Reply to Objection 2. An angel does not enlighten another by giving him the light of nature, grace, or glory, but by strengthening his natural light, and by manifesting to him the truth concerning the state of nature, of grace, and of glory, as explained above. Reply to Objection 3. The rational mind is formed immediately by God, either as the image from the exemplar, forasmuch as it is made to the image of God alone, or as the subject by the ultimate perfecting form. For the created mind is always considered to be unformed, except it adhere to the first truth, while the other kinds of enlightenment that proceed from man or angel are, as it were, dispositions to this ultimate form. Second article. Whether one angel moves another angel's will. Objection 1. It would seem that one angel can move another angel's will, because, according to Dionysius quoted above, Article 1. As one angel enlightens another, so does he cleanse and perfect another. But cleansing and perfecting seem to belong to the will, for the former seems to point to the stain of sin which appertains to the will, while to be perfected is to obtain an end which is the object of the will. Therefore, an angel can move another angel's will. Objection 2. Further, as Dionysius says on the heavenly hierarchy 7, 
the names of the angels designate their properties. Now the seraphim are so called because they kindle or give heat, and this is by love which belongs to the will. Therefore, one angel moves another angel's will. Objection 3. Further, the philosopher says, on the soul 3.11, that the higher appetite moves the lower. But as the intellect of the superior angel is higher, so also is his will. It seems, therefore, that the superior angel can change the will of another angel. On the contrary, to him it belongs to change the will to whom it belongs to bestow righteousness. For righteousness is the rightness of the will. But God alone bestows righteousness. Therefore, one angel cannot change another angel's will. I answer that as was said above, question 105, article 4, the will is changed in two ways, on the part of the object and on the part of the power. On the part of the object, both the good itself, which is the object of the will, moves the will, as the appetible moves the appetite, and he who points out the object, as, for instance, one who proves something to be good. But as we've said above, question 105, article 4, other goods in a measure incline the will, yet nothing sufficiently moves the will save the universal good, and that is God. And this good he alone shows, that it may be seen by the blessed, who, when Moses asked, Show me thy glory, answered, I will show thee all good. Exodus 33.18.19 Therefore, an angel does not move the will sufficiently, either as the object or as showing the object, but he inclines the will as something lovable, and as manifesting some created good ordered to God's goodness, and thus he can incline the will to the love of the creature or of God by way of persuasion. But on the part of the power, the will cannot be moved at all save by God. For the operation of the will is a certain inclination of the willer to the thing willed. And he alone can change this inclination who bestowed on the creature the power to will, just as that agent alone can change the natural inclination which can give the power to which follows that natural inclination. Now God alone gave to the creature the power to will, because he alone is the author of the intellectual nature. Therefore, an angel cannot move another angel's will. Reply to Objection 1. Cleansing and perfecting are to be understood according to the mode of enlightenment. And since God enlightens by changing the intellect and will, he cleanses by removing defects of intellect and will, and perfects unto the end of the intellect and will. But the enlightenment caused by an angel concerns the intellect, as explained above, answer 1. Therefore, an angel is to be understood as cleansing from the defect of nescience in the intellect, and as perfecting unto the consummate end of the intellect, and this is the knowledge of truth. Thus Dionysius says, the Ecclesiastical Hierarchy 6, that in the heavenly hierarchy, the chastening of the inferior essence is an enlightening of things unknown, that leads them to more perfect knowledge. For instance, we might say that corporeal sight is cleansed by the removal of darkness, enlightened by the diffusion of light, and perfected by being brought to the perception of the colored object. Reply to Objection 2. One angel can induce another to love God by persuasion, as explained above. Reply to Objection 3. 
The philosopher speaks of the lower sensitive appetite, which can be moved by the superior intellectual appetite, because it belongs to the same nature of the soul, and because the inferior appetite is a power in a corporeal organ. But this does not apply to the angels. Third article. Whether an inferior angel can enlighten a superior angel. Objection 1. It would seem that an inferior angel can enlighten a superior angel, for the ecclesiastical hierarchy is derived from and represents the heavenly hierarchy, and hence the heavenly Jerusalem is called our mother, Galatians 4.26. But in the church, even superiors are enlightened and taught by their inferiors, as the apostle says, 1 Corinthians 14.31. You may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be exhorted. Therefore, likewise in the heavenly hierarchy, superiors can be enlightened by inferiors. Objection 2. Further, as the order of corporeal substances depends on the will of God, so also does the order of spiritual substances. But, as was said above, question 105, article 6, God sometimes acts outside the order of corporeal substances. Therefore, he also sometimes acts outside the order of spiritual substances, by enlightening inferior otherwise than through their superiors. Therefore, in that way the inferiors, enlightened by God, can enlighten superiors. Objection 3. Further, one angel enlightens the other to whom he turns, as was above explained, Article 1. But since this turning to another is voluntary, the highest angel can turn to the lowest passing over the others. Therefore, he can enlighten him immediately, and thus the latter can enlighten his superiors. On the contrary, Dionysius says that this is the divine unalterable law, that inferior things are led to God by the superior. On the heavenly hierarchy 4, the ecclesiastical hierarchy 5. I answer that the inferior angels never enlighten the superior, but are always enlightened by them. The reason is because, as above explained, question 105, article 6, one order is under another, as cause is under cause, and hence, as cause is ordered to cause, so is order to order. Therefore there is no incongruity if sometimes anything is done outside the order of the inferior cause to be ordered to the superior cause, as in human affairs, the command of the president is passed over from obedience to the prince. So it happens that God works miraculously outside the order of corporeal nature, that men may be ordered to the knowledge of him. But the passing over of the order that belongs to spiritual substances in no way belongs to the ordering of men to God, since the angelic operations are not made known to us, as are the operations of sensible bodies. Thus the order which belongs to spiritual substances is never passed over by God, so that the inferiors are always moved by the superior, and not conversely. Reply to Objection 1. The ecclesiastical hierarchy imitates the heavenly in some degree, but not by a perfect likeness. For in the heavenly hierarchy the perfection of the order is in the proportion to its nearness to God, so that those who are the nearer to God are the more sublime in grade, and more clear in knowledge. And on that account the superiors are never enlightened by the inferiors, whereas in the ecclesiastical hierarchy, sometimes those who are the nearer to God in sanctity are, the, are in the lowest grade, 
and are not conspicuous for science. And some are also eminent in one kind of science and fail in another, and on that account superiors may be taught by inferiors. Reply to Objection 2. As above explained, there is no similarity between what God does outside the order of corporeal nature and that of spiritual nature. Hence, the argument does not hold. Reply to Objection 3. An angel turns voluntarily to enlighten another angel, but the angel's will is ever regulated by the divine law which made the order in the angels. Fourth article. Whether the superior angel enlightens the inferior as regards all he himself knows. Objection 1. It would seem that the superior angel does not enlighten the inferior concerning all he himself knows, for Dionysius says, on the heavenly hierarchy 12, that the superior angels have a more universal knowledge, and the inferior a more particular and individual knowledge. But more is contained under a universal knowledge than under a particular knowledge. Therefore, not all that the superior angels know is known by the inferior, though these being enlightened by the former. Objection 2. Further, the master of the sentences, 2d11, says that the superior angels had long known the mystery of the Incarnation, whereas the inferior angels did not know it until it was accomplished. Thus we find that on some of the angels inquiring, as it were, in ignorance, who is this King of Glory, other angels who knew answered, The Lord of hosts, he is the King of Glory, as Dionysius expounds on the heavenly hierarchy 7. But this would not apply if the superior angels enlighten the inferior concerning all they know themselves. Therefore, they do not do so. Objection 3. Further, if the superior angels enlighten the inferior about all they know, nothing that the superior angels know would be unknown to the inferior angels. Therefore, the superior angels could communicate nothing more to the inferior, which appears open to objection. Therefore, the superior angels enlighten the inferior in all things. On the contrary, Gregory, Peter Lombard, sentences 2d9, see Gregory, homily 34 in the Gospels, says, In that heavenly country, though there are some excellent gifts, yet nothing is held individually. And Dionysius says, each heavenly essence communicates to the inferior the gift derived from the superior, on the heavenly hierarchy 15, as quoted above, Article 1. I answer that every creature participates in the divine goodness, so as to diffuse the good it possesses to others, for it is of the nature of good to communicate itself to others. Hence also corporeal agents give their likeness to others, so far as they can. So the more an agent is established in the share of the divine goodness, so much the more does it strive to transmit its perfections to others as far as possible. Hence the blessed Peter admonishes those who by grace share in the divine goodness, saying, As every man hath received grace, ministering the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. 1 Peter 4.10 much more, therefore, do the holy angels, who enjoy the plenitude of participation of the divine goodness, impart the same to those below them. Nevertheless, 
This gift is not received so excellently by the inferior as by the superior angels, and therefore the superior ever remain in a higher order, and have a more perfect knowledge, as the master understands the same thing better than the pupil who learns from him. Reply to Objection 1. The knowledge of the superior angels is said to be more universal as regards the more eminent mode of knowledge. Reply to Objection 2. The master's words are not to be understood as if the inferior angels were entirely ignorant of the mystery of the Incarnation, but that they did not know it as fully as the superior angels, and that they progressed in the knowledge of it afterwards when the mystery was accomplished. Reply to Objection 3. Till the Judgment Day, some new things are always being revealed by God to the highest angels concerning the course of the world, and especially the salvation of the elect. Hence, there is always something for the superior angels to make known to the inferior. End of question 106. Question 107 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, on the Divine Government. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, on the Divine Government, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 107. The Speech of the Angels, in five articles. We next consider the speech of the angels. Here there are five points of inquiry. 1. Whether one angel speaks to another. 2. Whether the inferior speaks to the superior. 3. Whether an angel speaks to God. 4. Whether the angelic speech is subject to local distance. 5 whether all the speech of one angel to another is known to all. First article, part 1, question 107, article 1. Whether one angel speaks to another. Objection 1. It would seem that one angel does not speak to another, for Gregory says, Morals in the book of Job, 18, that, in the state of the resurrection, each one's body will not hide his mind from his fellows. Much less, therefore, is one angel's mind hidden from another, but speech manifests to another what lies hidden in the mind. Therefore it is not necessary that one angel should speak to another. Objection 2. Further, speech is twofold, interior, whereby one speaks to oneself, and exterior, whereby one speaks to another. But exterior speech takes place by some sensible sign, as by voice, or gesture, or some bodily member, as the tongue or the fingers, and this cannot apply to angels. Therefore one angel does not speak to another. Objection 3. Further, the speaker incites the hearer to listen to what he says, but it does not appear that one angel incites another to listen, for this happens among us by some sensible sign. Therefore, one angel does not speak to another. On the contrary, the Apostle says, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, 
if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. I answer that, the angels speak in a certain way, but, as Gregory says, the morals in the book of Job, too. It is fitting that our mind, rising above the properties of bodily speech, should be lifted to the sublime and unknown methods of interior speech. To understand how one angel speaks to another, we must consider that, as we explained above, question 82, article 4, when treating of the actions and powers of the soul, the will moves the intellect to its operation. Now an intelligible object is present to the intellect in three ways. First, habitually, or in the memory, as Augustine says. On the Trinity 14, 6, and 7. Secondly, as actually considered or conceived. Thirdly, as related to something else. And it is clear that the intelligible object passes from the first to the second stage by the command of the will, and hence, in the definition of habit, these words occur, which any one uses when he wills. So likewise the intelligible object passes from the second to the third stage by the will, for by the will the concept of the mind is ordered to something else, as, for instance, either to the performing of an action, or to being made known to another. Now when the mind turns itself to the actual consideration of any habitual knowledge, then a person speaks to himself, for the concept of the mind is called the interior word. And by the fact that the concept of the angelic mind is ordered to be made known to another by the will of the angel himself, the concept of one angel is made known to another, and in this way one angel speaks to another, for to speak to another only means to make known the mental concept to another. Reply Objection 1 Our mental concept is hidden by a twofold obstacle. The first is in the will, which can retain the mental concept within, or can direct it externally. In this way, God alone can see the mind of another, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. What man knoweth the things of a man, but the spirit of a man that is in him? The other obstacle whereby the mental concept is excluded from another one's knowledge comes from the body, and so it happens that even when the will directs the concept of the mind to make itself known, it is not at once made known to another, but some sensible sign must be used. Gregory alludes to this fact when he says, Morals in the Book of Job, too. To other eyes we seem to stand aloof, as it were, behind the wall of the body, and when we wish to make ourselves known, we go out, as it were, by the door of the tongue, to show what we really are. But an angel is under no such obstacle, and so he can make his concept known to another at once. Reply Objection 2 External speech, made by the voice, is a necessity for us on account of the obstacle of the body. Hence it does not befit an angel, but only interior speech belongs to him, and this includes not only the interior speech by mental concept, but also its being ordered to another's knowledge by the will. So the tongue of an angel is called metaphorically the angel's power, whereby he manifests his mental concept. Reply Objection 3 There is no need to draw the attention of the good angels, inasmuch as they always see each other in the word, for as one ever sees the other, so he ever sees what is ordered to himself. 
but because by their very nature they can speak to each other. And even now the bad angels speak to each other. We must say that the intellect is moved by the intelligible object, just as sense is affected by the sensible object. Therefore, as sense is aroused by the sensible object, so the mind of an angel can be aroused to attention by some intelligible power. Second article, part one, question 107, article two. Whether the inferior angel speaks to the superior? Objection one. It would seem that the inferior angel does not speak to the superior, for on the text, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. A gloss remarks that the speech of the angels is an enlightenment whereby the superior enlightens the inferior, but the inferior never enlightens the superior, as was explained above. Question 106, Article 3. Therefore, neither do the inferior speak to the superior. Objection 2. Further, as was said above, question 106, article 1, to enlighten merely means to acquaint one man of what is known to another, and this is to speak. Therefore, to speak and to enlighten are the same, so the same conclusion follows. Objection 3. Further, Gregory says, the morals in the book of Job, too. God speaks to the angels by the very fact that he shows to their hearts his hidden and invisible things. But this is to enlighten them. Therefore, whenever God speaks, he enlightens. In the same way, every angelic speech is enlightening. Therefore, an inferior angel can in no way speak to a superior angel. On the contrary, according to the exposition of Dionysius, on the heavenly hierarchy, seven, the inferior angel said to the superior, who is this king of glory? I answer that, the inferior angels can speak to the superior. To make this clear, we must consider that every angelic enlightening is an angelic speech, but on the other hand, not every speech is an enlightening, because, as we have said, Article 1, for one angel to speak to another angel means nothing else, but that by his own will he directs his mental concept in such a way that it becomes known to the other. Now what the mind conceives may be reduced to a twofold principle, to God himself, who is the primal truth, and to the will of the one who understands, whereby we actually consider anything. But because truth is the light of the intellect, and God himself is the rule of all truth, the manifestation of what is conceived by the mind, as depending on the primary truth, is both speech and enlightenment. For example, when one man says to another, heaven was created by God, or man is an animal. The manifestation, however, of what depends on the will of the one who understands, cannot be called an enlightenment, but is only a speech. For instance, when one says to another, I wish to learn this, I wish to do this or that. The reason is that the created will is not a light nor a rule of truth, but participates of light. Hence to communicate what comes from the created will is not, as such, an enlightening. For to know what you may will, or what you may understand does not belong to the perfection of my intellect, but only to know the truth in reality. 
Now it is clear that the angels are called superior or inferior by comparison with this principle, God. And therefore enlightenment, which depends on the principle which is God, is conveyed only by the superior angels to the inferior. But as regards the will as the principle, he who wills is first and supreme, and therefore the manifestation of what belongs to the will is conveyed to others by the one who wills. In that manner, both the superior angels speak to the inferior, and the inferior speak to the superior. From this clearly appears the replies to the first and second objections. Reply Objection 3. Every speech of God to the angels is an enlightening, because since the will of God is the rule of truth, it belongs to the perfection and enlightenment of the created mind to know even what God wills but the same does not apply to the will of the angels, as was explained above. Third Article, Part 1, Question 107, Article 3. Whether an angel speaks to God? Objection 1. It would seem that an angel does not speak to God, for speech makes known something to another, but an angel cannot make known anything to God, who knows all. Therefore an angel does not speak to God. Objection to. Further, to speak is to order the mental concept in reference to another, as was shown above, Article 1. But an angel ever orders his mental concept to God, so if an angel speaks to God, he ever speaks to God, which in some ways appears to be unreasonable, since an angel sometimes speaks to another angel. Therefore it seems that an angel never speaks to God. On the contrary, it is written, Zechariah, chapter 1, verse 12. The angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem? Therefore an angel speaks to God. I answer that, as was said above, articles 1 and 2. The angel speaks by ordering his mental concept to something else. Now one thing is ordered to another in a twofold manner in one way for the purpose of giving one thing to another, as in natural things the agent is ordered to the patient, and in human speech the teacher is ordered to the learner. And in this sense, an angel in no way speaks to God either of what concerns the truth, or of what depends on the created will, because God is the principle and source of all truth and of all will. In another way, one thing is ordered to another to receive something, as in natural things, the passive is ordered to the agent, and in human speech, the disciple to the master. And in this way, an angel speaks to God, either by consulting the divine will of what ought to be done, or by admiring the divine excellence, which he can never comprehend. Thus Gregory says, the morals in the book of Job, too, that the angels speak to God, when by contemplating what is above themselves, they rise to emotions of admiration. Reply Objection 1. Speech is not always for the purpose of making something known to another, but is sometimes finally ordered to the purpose of manifesting something to the speaker himself, as when the disciples ask instruction from the master. Reply Objection 2. The angels are ever speaking to God in the sense of praising and admiring him and his works, but they speak to him by consulting him about what ought to be done whenever they have to perform any new work, concerning which they desire enlightenment. 
Fourth Article, Part 1, Question 107, Article 4. Whether local distance influences the angelic speech? Objection 1. It would seem that local distance affects the angelic speech, for as Damascene says, on the Orthodox Faith 1, 13, an angel works where he is, but speech is an angelic operation. Therefore, as an angel is in a determinate place, it seems that an angel's speech is limited by the bounds of that place. Objection to. Further, a speaker cries out on account of the distance of the hearer, but it is said of the seraphim that they cried one to another. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. Therefore, in the angelic speech, local distance has some effect. On the contrary, it is said that the rich man in hell spoke to Abraham, notwithstanding the local distance. Luke chapter 16 verse 24. Much less therefore does local distance impede the speech of one angel to another. I answer that. The angelic speech consists in an intellectual operation, as explained above. Articles 1, 2, and 3. And the intellectual operation of an angel abstracts from the here and now, for even our own intellectual operation takes place by abstraction from the here and now, except accidentally on the part of the phantasms, which do not exist at all in an angel. But as regards whatever is abstracted from here and now, neither difference of time nor local distance has any influence whatever. Hence in the angelic speech, local distance is no impediment. Reply Objection 1. The angelic speech, as above explained, Article 1, Odd 2, is interior, perceived nevertheless by another, and therefore it exists in the angel who speaks, and consequently where the angel is who speaks. But as local distance does not prevent one angel seeing another, so neither does it prevent an angel perceiving what is ordered to him on the part of another, and this is to perceive his speech. Reply Objection 2. The cry mentioned is not a bodily voice raised by reason of the local distance, but is taken to signify the magnitude of what is said, or the intensity of the affection, according to what Gregory says. Morals in the Book of Job 2. The less one desires, the less one cries out. Fifth Article, Part 1, Question 107, Article 5 whether all the angels know what one speaks to another. Objection 1. It would seem that all the angels know what one speaks to another. For unequal local distance is the reason why all men do not know what one man says to another, but in the angelic speech, local distance has no effect, as above explained, Article 4. Therefore, all the angels know what one speaks to another. Objection 2. Further, all the angels have the intellectual power in common, so if the mental concept of one order to another is known by one, it is for the same reason known by all. Objection 3. Further, enlightenment is a kind of speech, but the enlightenment of one angel by another extends to all the angels, because, as Dionysius says, on the heavenly hierarchy, 15, each one of the heavenly beings communicates what he learns to the others. 
Therefore the speech of one angel to another extends to all. On the contrary, one man can speak to another alone, much more can this be the case among the angels. I answer that, as above explained, Articles 1 and 2, the mental concept of one angel can be perceived by another, when the angel who possesses the concept refers it by his will to another. Now a thing can be ordered through some cause to one thing and not to another. Consequently, the concept of one angel may be known by one and not by another, and therefore an angel can perceive the speech of one angel to another, whereas others do not, not through the obstacle of local distance, but on account of the will so ordering, as explained above. From this appear the replies to the first and second objections. Reply Objection 3. Enlightenment is of those truths that emanate from the first rule of truth, which is the principle common to all the angels, and in that way all enlightenments are common to all, but speech may be of something ordered to the principle of the created will, which is proper to each angel, and in this way it is not necessary that these speeches should be common to all. End of question 107. Question 108, Part 1 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, on the Divine Government. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, on the Divine Government, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 108. Of the Angelic Degrees of Hierarchies and Orders, in Eight Articles. Part 1. We next considered the degrees of the angels in their hierarchies and orders, for it was said above, Question 106, Article 3, that the superior angels enlighten the inferior angels, and not conversely. Under this head there are eight points of inquiry. 1. Whether all the angels belong to one hierarchy. 2. Whether in one hierarchy there is only one order. 3. Whether in one order there are many angels. 4. Whether the distinction of hierarchies and orders is natural. 5. Of the names and properties of each order. 6 of the comparison of the orders to one another. 7. Whether the orders will outlast the day of judgment. 8. Whether men are taken up into the angelic orders. First article, part 1, question 108, article 1. Whether all the angels are of one hierarchy. Objection 1. It would seem that all the angels belong to one hierarchy. For since the angels are supreme among creatures, it is evident that they are ordered for the best. But the best ordering of a multitude is for it to be governed by one authority, as the philosopher shows. Metaphysics 12, Didascally 11, 10, Politics 3, 4. Therefore, as a hierarchy is nothing but a sacred principality, it seems that all the angels belong to one hierarchy. Objection 2. Further, Dionysius says, 
on the heavenly hierarchy, three, that hierarchy is order, knowledge, and action. But all the angels agree in one order towards God, whom they know, and by whom in their actions they are ruled. Therefore all the angels belong to one hierarchy. Objection three. Further, the sacred principality called hierarchy is to be found among men and angels, but all men are of one hierarchy. Therefore, likewise, all the angels are of one hierarchy. On the contrary, Dionysius, on the heavenly hierarchy, six, distinguishes three hierarchies of angels. I answer that. Hierarchy means a sacred principality, as above explained. Now principality includes two things, the prince himself and the multitude ordered under the prince. Therefore, because there is one God, the prince not only of all the angels, but also of men and all creatures. So there is one hierarchy, not only of the angels, but also of all rational creatures, who can be participators of sacred things. According to Augustine, on the city of God, 12, 1. There are two cities, that is, two societies, one of the good angels and men, and the other of the wicked. But if we consider the principality on the part of the multitude ordered under the prince, then principality is said to be one, accordingly as the multitude can be subject in one way to the government of the prince. And those that cannot be governed in the same way by a prince belong to different principalities. Thus, under one king, there are different cities, which are governed by different laws and administrators. Now it is evident that men do not receive the divine enlightenments in the same way as do the angels, for the angels receive them in their intelligible purity, whereas men receive them under sensible signs. As Dionysius says, on the heavenly hierarchy, one. Therefore there must needs be a distinction between the human and the angelic hierarchy. In the same manner, we distinguish three angelic hierarchies, for it was shown above, question 55, article 3, in treating of the angelic knowledge, that the superior angels have a more universal knowledge of the truth than the inferior angels. This universal knowledge has three grades among the angels. For the types of things, concerning which the angels are enlightened, can be considered in a threefold manner. First, as proceeding from God as the first universal principle, which mode of knowledge belongs to the first hierarchy, connected immediately with God, and, as it were, placed in the vestibule of God, as Dionysius says, on the heavenly hierarchy, seven. Secondly, forasmuch as these types depend on the universal created causes, which in some way are already multiplied, which mode belongs to the second hierarchy. Thirdly, forasmuch as these types are applied to particular things as depending on their causes, which mode belongs to the lowest hierarchy. All this will appear more clearly when we treat of each of the orders. Article 6. In this way are the hierarchies distinguished on the part of the multitude of subjects. Hence it is clear that those err and speak against the opinion of Dionysius, who placed a hierarchy in the divine persons, and called it the super-celestial hierarchy. For in the divine persons there exists, indeed, a natural order, but there is no hierarchical order, for, as Dionysius says, on the heavenly hierarchy, three. 
the hierarchical order is so directed that some be cleansed enlightened and perfected and that others cleanse enlighten and perfect which far be it from us to apply to the divine persons reply objection one this objection considers principality on the part of the ruler inasmuch as a multitude is best ruled by one ruler as the philosopher asserts in those passages reply objection two as regards knowing god himself whom all see in one way that is in his essence there is no hierarchical distinction among the angels but there is such a distinction as regards the types of created things as above explained reply objection three all men are of one species and have one connatural mode of understanding which is not the case in the angels and hence the same argument does not apply to both second article part one question one hundred eight article two whether there are several orders in one hierarchy objection one it would seem that in one hierarchy there are not several orders for when a definition is multiplied the thing defined is also multiplied but hierarchy is order as dionysius says on the heavenly hierarchy three therefore if there are many orders there is not one hierarchy only but many objection to further different orders are different grades and grades among spirits are constituted by different spiritual gifts but among the angels all the spiritual gifts are common to all for nothing is possessed individually sentences two distinction nine therefore there are not different orders of angels objection three further in the ecclesiastical hierarchy the orders are distinguished according to the actions of cleansing enlightening and perfecting for the order of deacons is cleansing the order of priests is enlightening and of bishops perfecting as dionysius says on the ecclesiastical hierarchy five but each of the angels cleanses enlightens and perfects therefore there is no distinction of orders among the angels on the contrary the apostle says ephesians chapter one verse twenty and twenty one that god has set the man christ above all principality and power and virtue and dominion which are the various orders of the angels and some of them belong to one hierarchy as will be explained article six i answer that as explained above one hierarchy is one principality that is one multitude ordered in one way under the rule of a prince now such a multitude would not be ordered but confused if there were not in it different orders so the nature of a hierarchy requires diversity of orders this diversity of order arises from the diversity of offices and actions as appears in one city where there are different orders according to the different actions for there is one order of those who judge and another of those who fight and another of those who labor in the fields and so forth but although one city thus comprises several orders all may be reduced to three when we consider that every multitude has a beginning a middle and an end so in every city a threefold order of men is to be seen some of whom are supreme as the nobles others are the last as the common people 
while others hold a place between these, as a middle class, populus honorabilis. In the same way we find in each angelic hierarchy the orders distinguished according to their actions and offices, and all this diversity is reduced to three, namely, to the summit, the middle, and the base. And so in every hierarchy, Dionysius places three orders. On the heavenly hierarchy, six. Reply objection one. Order is twofold. In one way it is taken as the order comprehending in itself different grades, and in that way a hierarchy is called an order. In another way, one grade is called an order, and in that sense, the several orders of one hierarchy are so called. Reply Objection 2. All things are possessed in common by the angelic society, some things, however, being held more excellently by some than by others. Each gift is more perfectly possessed by the one who can communicate it than by the one who cannot communicate it, as the hot thing which can communicate heat is more perfect than that what is unable to give heat. And the more perfectly anyone can communicate a gift, the higher grade he occupies, as he is in the more perfect grade of mastership who can teach a higher science. By this solemnitude, we can reckon the diversity of grades or orders among the angels according to their different offices and actions. Reply Objection 3 the inferior angel is superior to the highest man of our hierarchy, according to the words, He that is the lesser in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, namely, John the Baptist, than whom there hath not risen a greater among them that are born of women. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. Hence the lesser angel of the heavenly hierarchy can not only cleanse, but also enlighten and perfect, and in a higher way than can the orders of our hierarchy. Thus the heavenly orders are not distinguished by reason of these, but by reason of other different acts. Third article, part one, question 108, article three. Whether there are many angels in one order? Objection one. It seems that there are not many angels in one order, for it was shown above, question 50, article four, that all the angels are unequal, but equals belong to one order. Therefore, there are not many angels in one order. Objection to. Further, it is superfluous for a thing to be done by many, which can be done sufficiently by one. But that which belongs to one angelic office can be done sufficiently by one angel, so much more sufficiently than the one sun does what belongs to the office of the sun, as the angel is more perfect than a heavenly body. If, therefore, the orders are distinguished by their offices, as stated above, Article 2, several angels in one order would be superfluous. Objection 3. Further, it was said above, Objection 1, that all the angels are unequal. Therefore, if several angels, for instance three or four, are of one order, the lowest one of the superior order will be more akin to the highest of the inferior order than with the highest of his own order, and thus he does not seem to be more of one order with the latter than with the former. Therefore, there are not many angels of one order. On the contrary, it is written, the seraphim cried to one another, Isaiah chapter 6 verse 3. Therefore, there are many angels in the one order of the seraphim. 
I answer that, whoever knows anything perfectly is able to distinguish its acts, power, and nature down to the minutest detail, whereas he who knows a thing in an imperfect manner can only distinguish it in a general way, and only as regards a few points. Thus one who knows natural things imperfectly can distinguish their orders in a general way, placing the heavenly bodies in one order, inanimate inferior bodies in another, plants in another, and animals in another. Whilst he who knows natural things perfectly is able to distinguish different orders in the heavenly bodies themselves and in each of the other orders. Now our knowledge of the angels is imperfect, as Dionysius says, on the angelic hierarchy, six. Hence we can only distinguish the angelic offices and orders in a general way, so as to place many angels in one order. But if we knew the offices and distinctions of the angels perfectly, we should know perfectly that each angel has his own office and his own order among things, and much more so than any star, though this be hidden from us. Reply Objection 1 all the angels of one order are in some way equal in a common solemnitude, whereby they are placed in that order, but absolutely speaking they are not equal. Hence, Dionysius says, on the heavenly hierarchy, 10, that in one and the same order of angels, there are those who are first, middle, and last. Reply Objection 2. That special distinction of orders and offices wherein each angel has his own office and order, is hidden from us. Reply Objection 3. As in a surface which is partly white and partly black, the two parts on the borders of white and black are more akin as regards their position than any other of the two white parts, but are less akin in quality. So two angels who are on the border of two orders are more akin in propinquity of nature than one of them is akin to the others of its own order, but less akin in their fitness for similar offices, which fitness, indeed, extends to a definite limit. Fourth Article, Part 1, Question 108, Article 4. Whether the distinction of hierarchies and orders comes from the angelic nature? Objection 1. It would seem that the distinction of hierarchies and of orders is not from the nature of the angels, for hierarchy is a sacred principality, and Dionysius places in its definition that it approaches a resemblance to God, as far as may be, on the heavenly hierarchy, three. But sanctity and resemblance to God is in the angels by grace and not by nature. Therefore the distinction of hierarchies and orders in the angels is by grace and not by nature. Objection 2. Further, the seraphim are called burning or kindling, as Dionysius says, on the heavenly hierarchy, 7. This belongs to charity which comes not from nature but from grace, for it is poured forth in our hearts by the Holy Ghost who is given to us. Romans chapter 5 verse 5 which is said not only of holy men, but also of the holy angels, as Augustine says, on the city of God, 12. Therefore the angelic orders are not from nature, but from grace. Objection 3. Further, the ecclesiastical hierarchy is copied from the heavenly, but the orders among men are not from nature, but by the gift of grace. 
for it is not a natural gift for one to be a bishop, and another a priest, and another a deacon. Therefore neither in the angels are the orders from nature, but from grace only. On the contrary, the master says, to distinction nine, that an angelic order is a multitude of heavenly spirits, who are likened to each other by some gift of grace, just as they agree also in the participation of natural gifts. Therefore the distinction of orders among the angels is not only by gifts of grace, but also by gifts of nature. I answer that. The order of government, which is the order of a multitude under authority, is derived from its end. Now the end of the angels may be considered in two ways. First, according to the faculty of nature, so that they may know and love God by natural knowledge and love. And according to their relation to this end, the orders of the angels are distinguished by natural gifts. Secondly, the end of the angelic multitude can be taken from what is above their natural powers, which consists in the vision of the divine essence, and in the unchangeable fruition of his goodness, to which end they can reach only by grace. And hence, as regards this end, the orders in the angels are adequately distinguished by the gifts of grace but dispositively by natural gifts, forasmuch as to the angels are given gratuitous gifts, according to the capacity of their natural gifts, which is not the case with men, as explained above. Question 62, Article 6. Hence among men the orders are distinguished according to the gratuitous gifts only, and not according to natural gifts. From the above, the replies to the objections are evident. End of question 108, part 1. Question 108, part 2 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, on the Divine Government. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, On the Divine Government, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 108. Of the Angelic Degrees of Hierarchies and Orders, in Eight Articles, Part 2. Fifth Article, Part 1, Question 108, Article 5 whether the orders of the angels are properly named. Objection 1. It would seem that the orders of the angels are not properly named, for all the heavenly spirits are called angels and heavenly virtues, but common names should not be appropriated to individuals. Therefore the orders of the angels and virtues are ineptly named. Objection 2. Further, it belongs to God alone to be Lord, according to the words, Know ye that the Lord, he is God. Psalms 99 verse 3. Therefore one order of the heavenly spirits is not properly called dominations. Objection 3. Further, the name domination seems to imply government and likewise the names principalities and powers. Therefore these three names do not seem to be properly applied to three orders. Objection 4. Further, archangels are, as it were, angel princes. Therefore, this name ought not to be given to any other order than to the principalities. Objection 5. 
Further, the name seraphim is derived from ardor, which pertains to charity, and the name cherubim from knowledge. But charity and knowledge are gifts common to all the angels, therefore they ought not to be names of any particular orders. Objection 6. Further, thrones are seats, but from the fact that God knows and loves the rational creature, he is said to sit within it. Therefore there ought not to be any order of thrones besides the cherubim and seraphim. Therefore it appears that the orders of angels are not properly styled. On the contrary is the authority of holy scripture wherein they are so named. For the name seraphim is found in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 2. The name cherubim in Ezekiel 1. Compare to chapter 10 verse 15 and verse 20. Thrones in Colossians chapter 1 verse 16. Dominations, virtues, powers and principalities are mentioned in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 21. The name archangels in the canonical epistle of St. Jude verse 9. And the name angels is found in many places of scripture. I answer that, as Dionysius says, on the heavenly hierarchy seven, in the names of the angelic orders, it is necessary to observe that the proper name of each order expresses its property. Now to see what is the property of each order, we must consider that in coordinated things, something may be found in a threefold manner, by way of property, by way of excess, and by way of participation. A thing is said to be in another by way of property, if it is adequate and proportionate to its nature. By excess, when an attribute is less than that to which it is attributed, but is possessed thereby in an eminent manner, as we have stated, question 13, article 2, concerning all the names which are attributed to God. By participation, when an attribute is possessed by something not fully but partially, thus holy men are called gods by participation. Therefore, if anything is to be called by a name designating its property, it ought not to be named from what it participates imperfectly, nor from that which it possesses in excess, but from that which is adequate thereto. As, for instance, when we wish properly to name a man, we should call him a rational substance, but not an intellectual substance, which latter is the proper name of an angel, because simple intelligence belongs to an angel as a property, and to a man by participation. Nor do we call him a sensible substance, which is the proper name of a brute, because sense is less than the property of a man, and belongs to a man in more excellent way than to animals. So we must consider that in the angelic orders, all spiritual perfections are common to all the angels, and that they are all more excellently in the superior than in the inferior angels. Further, as in these perfections, there are grades. The superior perfection belongs to the superior order as its property, whereas it belongs to the inferior by participation, and conversely the inferior perfection belongs to the inferior order as its property, and to the superior by way of excess and thus the superior order is dominated from the superior perfection. So in this way, Dionysius, on the heavenly hierarchy, seven, explains the names of the orders accordingly as they befit the spiritual perfections they signify. Gregory, on the other hand, in expounding these names, homily 34 on the Gospels, 
seems to regard more the exterior menstruations, for he says that angels are so called as announcing the least things, and the archangels in the greatest. By the virtues miracles are wrought, by the powers hostile powers are repulsed, and the principalities preside over the good spirits themselves. Reply Objection 1. Angel means messenger, so all the heavenly spirits, so far as they make known divine things, are called angels. But the superior angels enjoy a certain excellence as regards this manifestation, from which the superior orders are denominated. The lowest order of angels possess no excellence above the common manifestation, and therefore it is denominated from manifestation only. And thus the common name remains, as it were, proper to the lowest order, as Dionysius says, on the heavenly hierarchy, 5. Or we may say that the lowest order can be specially called the order of angels, forasmuch as they announce things to us immediately. Virtue can be taken in two ways. First commonly, considered as the medium between the essence and the operation, and in that sense, all the heavenly spirits are called heavenly virtues, as also heavenly essences. Secondly, as meaning a certain excellence of strength, and thus it is the proper name of an angelic order. Hence Dionysius says, on the heavenly hierarchy, 8, that the name virtues signifies a certain virile and immovable strength. First, in regard of those divine operations which befit them. Secondly, in regard to receiving divine gifts. Thus it signifies that they undertake fearlessly the divine behests appointed to them, and this seems to imply strength of mind. Reply Objection 2. As Dionysius says, on Divine Names 12, Dominion is attributed to God in a special manner, by way of excess, but the Divine Word gives the more illustrious heavenly princes the name of Lord by participation, through whom the inferior angels receive the divine gifts. Hence Dionysius also states, on the heavenly hierarchy 8, that the name domination means first a certain liberty, free from servile condition and common subjection, such as that of plebeians, and from tyrannical oppression, endured something even by the great. Secondly, it signifies a certain rigid and inflexible supremacy, which does not bend to any servile act, or to the act of those who are subject to or oppressed by tyrants. Thirdly, it signifies the desire and participation of the true dominion which belongs to God. Likewise, the name of each order signifies the participation of what belongs to God, as the name virtues signifies the participation of the divine virtue, and the same principle applies to the rest. Reply Objection 3. The names domination, power, and principality belong to government in different ways. The place of a lord is only to prescribe what is to be done. So Gregory says, homily 24 on the Gospels, that some companies of the angels, because others are subject to obedience to them, are called dominations. The name power points out a kind of order according to what the apostle says. He that resisteth the power resisteth the ordination of God. Romans chapter 13 verse 2. And so Dionysius says, on the heavenly hierarchy, 8, 
that the name power signifies a kind of ordination both as regards the reception of divine things and as regards the divine actions performed by superiors towards inferiors by leading them to things above therefore to the order of powers it belongs to regulate what is to be done by those who are subject to them to preside principari as gregory says homily twenty four on the gospels is to be first among others as being first in carrying out what is ordered to be done and so dionysius says on the heavenly hierarchy nine that the name of principalities signifies one who leads in a sacred order for those who lead others being first among them are properly called princes according to the words princes went before joined with singers psalm sixty seven verse twenty six reply objection four the archangels according to dionysius on the heavenly hierarchy nine are between the principalities and the angels a medium compared to one extreme seems like the other as participating in the nature of both extremes thus tepid seems cold compared to hot and hot compared to cold so the archangels are called the angel princes forasmuch as they are princes as regards the angels and angels as regards the principalities but according to gregory homily twenty four on the gospels they are called archangels because they preside over the one order of the angels as it were announcing greater things and the principalities are so called as presiding over all the heavenly virtues who fulfill the divine commands reply objection five the name seraphim does not come from charity only but from the excess of charity expressed by the word ardor or fire hence dionysius on the heavenly hierarchy seven expounds the name seraphim according to the properties of fire containing an excess of heat now in fire we may consider three things first the movement which is upwards and continuous this signifies that they are born inflexibly towards god secondly the active force which is heat which is not found in fire simply but exists with a certain sharpness as being of most penetrating action and reaching even to the smallest things and as it were with superabundant fervor whereby is signified the action of these angels exercised powerfully upon those who are subject to them rousing them to a like fervor and cleansing them wholly by their heat thirdly we consider in fire the quality of clarity or brightness which signifies that these angels have in themselves an inexhaustible light and that they also perfectly enlighten others in the same way the name cherubim comes from a certain excess of knowledge hence it is interpreted fullness of knowledge which dionysius on the heavenly hierarchy seven expounds in regard to four things the perfect vision of god the full reception of the divine light their contemplation in god of the beauty of the divine order and in regard to the fact that possessing this knowledge fully they pour it forth copiously upon others reply objection six the order of the thrones excels the inferior orders as having an immediate knowledge of the types of the divine works whereas the cherubim have the excellence of knowledge and the seraphim the excellence of ardor and although these two excellent attributes include the third yet the gift belonging to the thrones 
does not include the other two, and so the order of the thrones is distinguished from the orders of the cherubim and the seraphim. For it is a common rule in all things that the excellence of the inferior is contained in the superior, but not conversely. But Dionysius, on the heavenly hierarchy, seven, explains the name thrones by its relation to material seats, in which we may consider four things. First, the sight, because seats are raised above the earth, and to the angels who are called thrones, are raised up to the immediate knowledge of the types of things in God. Secondly, because in material seats is displayed strength, forasmuch as a person sits firmly on them. But here the reverse is the case, for the angels themselves are made firm by God. Thirdly, because the seat receives him who sits thereon, and he can be carried thereupon, and so the angels receive God in themselves, and in a certain way bear him to the inferior creatures. Fourthly, because of its shape, a seat is open on one side to receive the sitter, and thus are the angels promptly open to receive God and to serve him. Sixth article, part one, question 108, article six. Whether the grades of the orders are properly assigned? Objection one. It would seem that the grades of the orders are not properly assigned, for the order of prelates is the highest, but the names of dominations, principalities, and powers, of themselves, imply prelacy. Therefore, these orders ought not to be supreme. Objection two. Further, the nearer an order is to God, the higher it is. But the order of thrones is the nearest to God, for nothing is nearer to the sitter than the seat. Therefore, the order of the thrones is the highest. Objection three. Further, knowledge comes before love, and intellect is higher than will. Therefore, the order of cherubim seems to be higher than the seraphim. Objection four. Further, Gregory, homily 24 on the Gospels, places the principalities above the powers. These, therefore, are not placed immediately above the archangels, as Dionysius says, on the heavenly hierarchy, nine. On the contrary, Dionysius, on the heavenly hierarchy, seven, places in the highest hierarchy the seraphim as the first, the cherubim as the middle, and the thrones as the last. In the middle hierarchy, he places the dominations as the first, the virtues in the middle, the powers last. In the lowest hierarchy, the principalities first, then the archangels, and lastly, the angels. I answer that. The grades of the angelic orders are assigned by Gregory, homily 24 on the Gospels, and Dionysius, on the heavenly hierarchy 7, who agree as regards all except the principalities and virtues. For Dionysius places the virtues beneath the dominations and above the powers, the principalities beneath the powers and above the archangels. Gregory, however, places the principalities between the dominations and the powers, and the virtues between the powers and the archangels. Each of these placings may claim authority from the words of the apostle, who, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, enumerates the middle orders, beginning with the lowest saying that God set him, for example, Christ, on his right hand in the heavenly places, above all principality and power, and virtue and dominion. Here he places virtues between powers and dominations, according to the placing of Dionysius. 
writing however to the colossians chapter one verse sixteen numbering the same orders from the highest he says whether thrones or dominations or principalities or powers all things were created by him and in him here he places the principalities between the dominations and powers as does also gregory let us then first examine the reason for the ordering of dionysius in which we see that as said above article one the highest hierarchy contemplates the ideas of things in god himself the second in the universal causes and third in their application of particular effects and because god is the end not only of the angelic ministrations but also of the whole creation it belongs to the first hierarchy to consider the end to the middle one belongs the universal disposition of what is to be done and to the last belongs the application of this disposition to the effect which is the carrying out of the work for it is clear that these three things exist in every kind of operation so dionysius considering the properties of the orders as derived from their names places in the first hierarchy those orders the names of which are taken from their relation to god the seraphim cherubim and thrones and he places in the middle hierarchy those orders whose names denote a certain kind of common government or disposition the dominations virtues and powers and he places in the third hierarchy the orders whose names denote the execution of the work the principalities angels and archangels as regards the end three things may be considered for firstly we consider the end then we acquire perfect knowledge of the end thirdly we fix our intention on the end of which the second is an addition to the first and the third an addition to both and because god is the end of creatures as the leader is the end of an army as the philosopher says metaphysics twelve didascally eleven ten so a somewhat similar order may be seen in human affairs for there are some who enjoy the dignity of being able with familiarity to approach the king or leader others in addition are privileged to know his secrets and others above these ever abide with him in a close union according to this solemnitude we can understand the disposition of the orders of the first hierarchy for the thrones are raised up so as to be familiar recipients of god in themselves in the sense of knowing immediately the types of things in himself and this is proper to the whole of the first hierarchy the cherubim know the divine secret supereminently and the seraphim excel in what is supreme excellence of all in being united to god himself and all this in such a manner that the whole of this hierarchy can be called the thrones as from what is common to all the heavenly spirits together they are all called angels as regards government three things are comprised therein the first of which is to appoint those things which are to be done and this belongs to the dominations the second is to give the power of carrying out what is to be done which belongs to the virtues the third is to order what has been commanded or decided to be done can be carried out by others which belongs to the powers the execution of the angelic ministrations consists in announcing divine things now in the execution of any action there are beginners and leaders as in singing the presenters and in war generals and officers this belongs to the principalities there are others who simply execute what is to be done and these are the angels others hold a middle place and these are the archangels as above explained 
This explanation of the orders is quite a reasonable one, for the highest in an inferior order always has affinity to the lowest in the higher order, as the lowest animals are near to the plants. Now the first order is that of the divine persons, which terminates in the Holy Ghost, who is love proceeding, with whom the highest order of the first hierarchy has affinity, denominated as it is from the fire of love. The lowest order of the first hierarchy is that of the thrones, who in their own order are akin to the dominations, for the thrones, according to Gregory, homily 24 on the Gospels, are so called because through them God accomplishes his judgments, since they are enlightened by him in a manner adapted to the immediate enlightening of the second hierarchy, to which belongs the disposition of the divine ministrations. The order of the powers is akin to the order of the principalities, for as it belongs to the powers to impose order on those subject to them, this ordering is plainly shown at once in the name of principalities, who, as presiding over the government of peoples and kingdoms, which occupies the first and principal place in the divine ministrations, are the first in the execution thereof. For the good of a nation is more divine than the good of one man. Ethics 1, 2. And hence it is written, the prince of the kingdom of the Persians resisted me. Daniel chapter 10, verse 13. The disposition of the orders which is mentioned by Gregory is also reasonable. For since the dominations appoint and order what belongs to the divine ministrations, the orders subject to them are arranged according to the disposition of those things in which the divine ministrations are effected. Still, as Augustine says, on the Trinity 3. Bodies are ruled in a certain order, the inferior by the superior, and all of them by the spiritual creature, and the bad spirit by the good spirit. So the first order after the dominations is called the principalities, who rule even over good spirits, then the powers, who coerce the evil spirits, even as evildoers are coerced by earthly powers, as it is written, Romans chapter 13, verse 3 and 4. After these come the virtues, which have power over corporeal nature in the working of miracles. After these are the angels and the archangels, who announce to men either great things above reason, or small things within the purview of reason. Reply Objection 1. The angels' subjection to God is greater than their presiding over inferior things, and the latter is derived from the former. Thus the orders which derive their name from presiding are not the first and highest but rather the orders deriving their name from the nearest and relation to God. Reply Objection 2. The nearness to God designated by the name of the thrones belongs also to the cherubim and seraphim, and in a more excellent way, as above explained. Reply Objection 3. As explained above. Question 27, Article 3. Knowledge takes place accordingly as the thing known is in the knower, but love as the lover is united to the object loved. Now higher things are in a nobler way in themselves than in lower things, whereas lower things are in higher things in a nobler way than they are in themselves. Therefore to know lower things is better than to love them, and to love the higher things, God above all, is better than to know them. Reply Objection 4 a careful comparison will show that little or no difference exists in reality between the dispositions of the orders according to Dionysius and Gregory. For Gregory expounds the name, principalities, from their presiding over good spirits, 
which also agrees with the virtues accordingly as this name expressed a certain strength, giving efficacy to the inferior spirits in the execution of the divine ministrations. Again, according to Gregory, the virtues seem to be the same as principalities of Dionysius, for to work miracles holds the first place in the divine ministrations, since thereby the way is prepared for the announcement of the archangels and the angels. Seventh article, part one, question 108, article seven. Whether the orders will outlast the day of judgment? Objection one. It would seem that the orders of angels will not outlast the day of judgment, for the apostle says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24, that Christ will bring to naught all principality and power, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God and the Father. And this will be in the final summation. Therefore, for the same reason, all others will be abolished in that state. Objection to. Further, to the office of the angelic orders, it belongs to cleanse, enlighten, and perfect. But after the day of judgment, one angel will not cleanse, enlighten, or perfect another, because they will not advance any more in knowledge. Therefore, the angelic powers would remain for no purpose. Objection 3. Further, the apostle says of the angels, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, that they are all ministering spirits, sent to minister to them who shall receive the inheritance of salvation. Whence it appears that the angelic offices are ordered for the purpose of leading men to salvation. But all the elect are in pursuit of salvation until the day of judgment. Therefore, the angelic offices and orders will not outlast the day of judgment. On the contrary, it is written, Judges chapter 5, verse 20, stars remaining in their order and courses, which is applied to the angels. Therefore, the angels will remain in their orders. I answer that, in the angelic orders we may consider two things, the distinction of grades and the execution of their offices. The distinction of grades among the angels takes place according to the difference of grace and nature, as above explained, Article 4. And these differences will ever remain in the angels, for these differences of natures cannot be taken from them unless they themselves be corrupted. The difference of glory will also ever remain in them according to the difference of preceding merit. As to the execution of the angelic offices, it will to a certain degree remain after the day of judgment, and to a certain degree will cease. It will cease accordingly, as their offices are directed towards leading others to their end, but it will remain, accordingly as it agrees with the attainment of the end. Thus also the various ranks of soldiers have different duties to perform in battle and in triumph. Reply Objection 1. The principalities and powers will come to an end in that final consummation as regards their office of leading others to their end, because when the end is attained, it is no longer necessary to tend towards the end. This is clear from the words of the apostle when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God and the Father. For example, when he shall have led the faithful to the enjoyment of God himself. Reply Objection 2. The actions of angels over the other angels are to be considered according to a likeness to our own intellectual actions. In ourselves we find many intellectual actions, which are ordered according to the order of cause and effect as when we gradually arrive at one conclusion by many middle terms. Now it is manifest that the knowledge of a conclusion depends on all the preceding middle terms, not only in the new acquisition of knowledge, 
but also as regards the keeping of the knowledge acquired. A proof of this is that when anyone forgets any of the preceding middle terms, he can have opinion or belief about the conclusion, but not knowledge, as he is ignorant of the order of the causes. So since the inferior angels know the types of the divine works by the light of the superior angels, their knowledge depends on the light of the superior angels, not only as regards the acquisition of knowledge, but also as regards the preserving of the knowledge possessed. So although after the judgment, the inferior angels will not progress in the knowledge of some things, still this will not prevent their being enlightened by the superior angels. Reply Objection 3 Although after the day of judgment, men will not be led any more to salvation by the ministry of the angels, still those who are already saved will be enlightened through the angelic ministry. Eighth Article, Part 1, Question 108, Article 8. Whether men are taken up into the angelic orders? Objection 1. It would seem that men are not taken up into the orders of the angels, for the human hierarchy is stationed beneath the lowest heavenly hierarchy, as the lowest under the middle hierarchy, and the middle beneath the first. But the angels of the lowest hierarchy are never transferred into the middle or the first. Therefore neither are men transferred to the angelic orders. Objection 2. Further, certain offices belong to the orders of the angels, as to guard, to work miracles, to coerce the demons, and the like which do not appear to belong to the souls of the saints. Therefore they are not transferred to the angelic orders. Objection 3. Further, as the good angels lead on to good, so do the demons to what is evil. But it is erroneous to say that the souls of bad men are changed into demons. For Christostone rejects this. Homily 28 on the Gospel of Matthew. Therefore, it does not seem that the souls of the saints will be transferred to the orders of angels. On the contrary, the Lord says of the saints that they will be as the angels of God. Matthew chapter 22 verse 30. I answer that, as above explained, articles 4 and 7. The orders of the angels are distinguished according to the conditions of nature and according to the gifts of grace. Considered only as regards the grade of nature, men can in no way be assumed into the angelic orders, for the natural distinction will always remain. In view of this distinction, some assert that men can in no way be transferred to an equality with the angels, but this is erroneous, contradicting as it does the promise of Christ, saying that the children of the resurrection will be equal to the angels in heaven. Luke chapter 20 verse 36. For whatever belongs to nature is the material part of an order, whilst that which perfects is from grace, which depends on the liberality of God, and not on the order of nature. Therefore, by the gift of grace, men can merit glory in such a degree as to be equal to the angels, in each of the angelic grades, and this implies that men are taken up into the orders of the angels. Some, however, say that not all who are saved are assumed into the angelic orders, but only virgins or the perfect, and that the other will constitute their own order, as it were, corresponding to the whole society of the angels. But this is against what Augustine says, on the city of God 12, 9, that there will not be two societies of men and angels, but only one, because the beatitude of all is to cleave to God alone. Reply Objection 1. 
Grace is given to the angels in proportion to their natural gifts. This, however, does not apply to men, as above explained. Article 4. Question 62, Article 6. So, as the inferior angels cannot be transferred to the natural grade of the superior, neither can they be transferred to the superior grade of grace, whereas men can ascend to the grade of grace, but not of nature. Reply Objection 2. The angels, according to the order of nature, are between us and God. Therefore, according to the common law, not only human affairs are administered by them, but also all corporeal matters. But holy men, even after this life, are of the same nature with ourselves, and hence according to the common law, they do not administer human affairs, nor do they interfere in the things of the living. As Augustine says, on the care to be had for the dead, 13, 16. Still, by a certain special dispensation, it is sometimes granted to some of the saints to exercise these offices, by working miracles, by coercing the demons, or by doing something of that kind, as Augustine says. On the care to be had for the dead, 16. Reply Objection 3. It is not erroneous to say that men are transferred to the penalty of demons, but some erroneously state that the demons are nothing but souls of the dead, and it is this that Chrysostom rejects. End of Question 108, Part 2